Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger. This month, we have a great episode with Dr. Rachel Frank. Dr. Frank is an orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist in Colorado. She is an associate professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and is also the director of the Joint Preservation Program at the University of Colorado. She is also the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Cartilage and Joint Preservation and has published over 300 scientific articles and over 50 book chapters. I had a fantastic time speaking with Dr. Frank, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Rachel Frank. Dr. Rachel Frank, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. I'm so happy, you know, we were finally able to schedule a time in our busy, busy schedules to do this. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm pumped and uh, your podcast is phenomenal and I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. And so right off the bat, sports reference, sports pun put in there on purpose. Um, I would love for you in your own words to describe your background, where you went to, you know, hometown medical school residency fellowship and beyond. Absolutely. So I was born and raised in Illinois. Um, I like to say I'm from Chicago, but really from the Northwest suburbs, but we can just say Chicago because it's much cooler and did all of my training to date in Illinois until coming out to Colorado to practice. So I did my undergrad at the University of Illinois and played soccer there. I was a goalkeeper for four years, which was um, really a big stimulus to getting me into medicine and orthopedics in general. I went on to Northwestern's Feinberg School of Medicine for medical school, had a phenomenal time there in Chicago. During medical school, I ended up taking a research year uh, well before taking step one, well before knowing what I wanted to do with life, but had um, had an opportunity to head over to Rush to do ACL surgery on rabbits. And I thought, oh, this is really cool. I didn't think this is what research was. I thought research was pipetting or right. writing books or whatnot. Um, and uh, I didn't realize you could actually operate and learn how to get technical. And so did a research year, which turned out to be the most inspiring year of my life, um, probably the stimulus to academic orthopedics, uh, without a doubt. And then I was very lucky and got into residency and, and was able to go to Rush for residency and stayed at Rush, drank um, whatever they were serving there and, and stayed there for fellowship for sports medicine and shoulder surgery. And then I took a job at the University of Colorado, but before heading over to Denver, I actually did a little mini traveling fellowship around the country and then around the world. And I did that because I wanted to have some extra exposure to techniques outside of Rush. You know, there's some advantages mm. to training in the same place for residency and fellowship, but there's also some disadvantages in that you only see things one way. And so I wanted to explore other ways to practice sports medicine. And so went over um, up to Canada to visit Al Getgood in London, Ontario, and learn about um, different types of osteotomies and ligament reconstructions. And then went over to Europe and spent some time in France and Germany and Italy. Um, and it was just phenomenal. And then came out here to Denver and Boulder and started practice. And now here we are. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. Which, by the way, I knew that you were a great guest to have on this podcast because I was also a soccer goalkeeper in yes. college. It, it, there it, it is. Just, we could- we could probably finish the podcast now. I mean, it's, I know literally, it's all just like mic drop. It's all we need to know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my word! So I know when 
did you know you wanted to do orthopedic surgery? Is that the same time in which you knew you wanted to do medicine or did you kind of discover a little bit later on you're like, mm, ortho is for me? I think I knew early on, but it was certainly medicine first. So there's no physicians in my immediate family. I'm never exposed to this growing up or to the lifestyle of being a physician in any way, shape or form. In fact, my first experience understanding what practicing medicine was like was when I met my team doc when I was a student athlete at Illinois and Mm -hmm. had some knee injuries. And so that was my first exposure to kind of, okay, this is cool. You can practice medicine, but also be around sports. I was basically a dumb jock. All I cared about in college was soccer. Um, My major, you know, I majored in biology and Spanish, and that was totally an afterthought. It sounds so many years later, it sounds so weird to say that because our life is, is, you know, our career is, is based on our education, but soccer really was what uh, my life was all about. Uh, but you can, I, you know, I think even in high school and probably in junior high, my parents would tell you that I always wanted to be a doctor. That's, you know, when you ask your kids, what do you want to do when you grow up? That's what I would say. And I think uh, my exposures as a student athlete, and then more so when I was in med school and did that research year, um, I did the research year because I knew I had an interest in ortho. And, and again, I think that was just inherent to being a student athlete, liking medicine, figuring how do I marry these two things? And orthopedics seems like the, fir- the you know, the perfect match because you also get to use your hands, which I really enjoyed doing, you know, as a goalkeeper, you're using your hands. And so, you know, I think it, it just kind of all fit together. Um, but I will say when I came back, so I did my research year between my first and second year of, sorry, my second and third year of med school, which is a little atypical. Most people do it between their third and fourth year. They often do it because um, perhaps they have a low step one or their CV is not beefed up enough where they feel that they're competitive. I didn't even have a CV at that point or a step one. I just had decided to do this research here. And so when I came back, I really, as an M3 student, I shadowed every surgical specialty. So I really fell in love with um, surgical oncology and I fell in love with plastic surgery and breast surgery and all the different surgeries um, with the exception of OB-GYN surgery. I did not enjoy uh, that as much. Uh, but I just kept coming back to ortho. You know, it just, mm. it seemed like that was for me, but I tried to be open-minded as a third year student. And I really encourage the students I work with, even if they're gung-ho ortho and that's why they're shadowing me and whatnot. I tell them, look, you have four years to figure it out. Well, three years because of the match, but you have four years to kind of figure out what you want to do. Just because you think you might want to do it, make sure you've you've checked out the other things. Um, and, and I, so I tried to do my due diligence, but at the end of the day, it was a no-brainer, you know, ortho and then sports medicine. I, I would probably say I knew this from the womb and right. um, and this is in my blood. Um, and so I, you know, and I, I, you know, it's a cliche to say when when you're having so much fun every day, it doesn't feel like work, but that is my life. You know, I it's it's absolutely the right choice. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I know that you've done so much within the realm of sports medicine. And so I would like to just kind of dive in. And one of the first things that kind of pops up on your website is that you recently published, you know, a textbook, NBD, um, entitled The Female Athlete. So 342 pages worth of content in which you basically, in your words, uh, provide a concise expert coverage of the ways in which common sports medicine injuries present in female patients versus male patients describing recent literature analyzing sex differences in injury patterns and available treatment options. So what was the inspiration for wanting to publish this textbook? Well, it's a few different things. And, you know, it's funny, I see the word concise or I hear the word concise and I think, well, 342 pages, not so concise. So, so that's me in a nutshell. Um, and so 
Uh, first and foremost, whenever I talk about this book, and for all three readers who have read it, thank you for reading it. Um, I do want to credit uh, Mary Mulcahy and Liz Matskin, who um, who really helped with this book. Um, just incredible, um, incredible people to work with on this. Uh, huge mentors and colleagues and and friends for me. Um, and so I just want to give them their their kudos. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. We're we're in an interesting time in 2022, and we thought about this book right before the pandemic. So that's when mm. we started to really um, get this going. But the pandemic has changed a lot, um, and a lot of things have happened in the world outside of medicine where we're paying more attention to subtle differences or not so subtle differences like male versus female or non-binary or whatever it might be. And we're learning that not all things apply to all people the same way. And I think with the female athlete, this is paramount. I mean, we've known for decades, for example, ACL injuries are four times or more more common in the female athlete compared to the male athlete. Yet most of the research from a basic science animal study perspective, all done on male specimens, all done on male animals, et cetera. And we're not paying attention to subtle differences. And perhaps if we were to, perhaps if we were to look at some of the differences you know, an ACL is an ACL till it isn't, right? If we were to look at some of the subtle differences, maybe we would better understand the the true pathologies that are different between men and women and true differences in how to prevent injury, treat injury, and rehab these patients back from their, from their surgery or from their injury if they're not having surgery. So the inspiration was to put all of this data, and there's a lot of data available. When you look on PubMed, you look on Google, you look wherever you look for your sources, there's a ton of information on sex differences in sports medicine, the female athlete but it's all over the place. And so we right. wanted to put it in one place. And we're already thinking about um, version two, because even since we published this, the, the or addition to, excuse me, even since we published this, the literature has been updated with more studies, which is great because people are paying more attention to this. So that was kind of one inspiration for this. The other was um, a little bit more personal. And um, it was that the we wanted to, or at least I wanted to, give women a platform. So when you look at sports medicine conferences, like the rest of orthopedic surgery, women are the minority in the room. And, you know, we all know about the 6%, um, but 14% of residents. And in sports medicine, it's about 11 to 14% of practicing members of ANA and AOSSM, et cetera. Um, But when you look around the room, it looks like the same demographic over and over and over. And when you're up on the podiums, it's the same demographic over and over and over. And every society is doing, I think, they're they're making changes. They're at least recognizing their inherent biases and they're making efforts toward trying to improve the diversity of the people up on the lecture stage, up on the podium, up on the panels, etc., But often the program committees are made of the same people who then invite their same friends who have done this for years and years. And this is the same with textbooks and chapters and journals. And so the big question is, how do we get women more available to be on the platform? And not just because they're women. I want to make that very clear. That's actually one of my pet peeves. Don't just want to put people up on a stage because it's because just because, right, just to check a box. There are so many female experts in sports medicine who just haven't been given the opportunity to share their expertise, to share their talent. So what we did was we invited only women senior authors. We did not exclude them from asking co-authors to help with them, help write a chapter, and those co-authors could be male, could be whatever, but we invited only senior authors. And so 
Every chapter in this book is authored or co-authored by a female superstar in sports medicine. For me, that's a first. I've never heard of an right. orthopedic textbook textbook in medicine, although I haven't researched every textbook in medicine, so I, there could be many out there. But I have not seen this or heard of this. And so for me, that's actually the more exciting part is we have this expert level, you know, concise, so to speak, text <laughs> of, of, of content that's so important to us who practice sports medicine, but it's written all by female experts. And they were given a platform to do that. And, and now... When pe- if and when people read this book, they'll see, oh, Dr. So-and-so wrote this chapter. Let me invite her to come give you know, a grand rounds on this. Or let mm-hmm. me invite her to come talk about this because she's clearly an expert. And they might not have known that before. And so I know that's a long-winded response, but it's so important to me to give people a chance. Um, I've been given many chances and I've tried to make the most of them. But we're in a field where you're not always given that chance simply because it's the same people inviting the same people to do the same things. So we have to shake that up a little bit. And I think this book is one way to do that. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I think your point about the grand rounds aspect is so true. Like I remember, you know, through doing this podcast, I was able to, you know, have all the amazing folks that I've been able to interview, like Dr. Casey Humbert is for like, I, it was such like, oh, it's so interesting to be able to speak with her and talk about like medical ethics and orthopedics. And then, you know, our residency is kind enough to ask us residents, like, who would you like to invite for grand rounds? And I was like, Casey Humber, get her on here, you know, and she was able to give a grand rounds. And it was so, it was so like such a different topic that we hadn't even had before. And it was, it was so cool. Um, But that's just one example where it's just like, when you bring these folks out into the light, you're like, wow, these people are amazing, you know, and you get to hear them and all these sorts of things. And so that's so true. Um, And now this is the part where it's an interesting topic, but I would love to know what is your favorite chapter in this textbook and why? Well, so it's funny. um, When you look at the book, there's, there's three chapters on ACL injuries. Um, This was... This was interesting and I didn't, um, this, you know, I don't know that I would necessarily have three chapters on ACL injuries again, um, because there's a lot of overlap, but they were each had a different theme and each Mm. of the authors had so much to share within that, that we didn't necessarily want to cut that off. But one of the ACL chapters, um, in particular, I I forget which, which number chapter it is, but the ACL chapter in female soccer players, of course, that's my favorite chapter just because it's personal to me, um, in terms of understanding, you know, those injuries. But I would say, you know, the book is really comprehensive in that there's chapters on pregnancy and, you know, injuries and athletic considerations in pregnancy. Mm. We have um, we have a chapter on Red S, you know, the, the so-called female athlete triad, but relative energy deficiency syndrome. We have concussion differences and there. I mean, the the topic of concussion in women. Oh, my goodness. It is so different than how concussions affect men. And, wow. you know, who knew and and how do we approach these athletes and the whole mental health component to coming back from a concussion is different in women than men. And so I learned a ton by editing that chapter and reading from some some thought leaders in that topic. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I picked the topics um, and, and again with my co-editors because we felt that this was a comprehensive text. So I would say my absolute favorite is the ACL and soccer players chapter just because I'm inherently biased. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the book is so comprehensive that if there's you know, even selfishly, if if one of us, one of our our, our you know our our um, female orthopod colleagues is 
pregnant and wondering what can I do or what should I do? Like certainly you could ask your OB guide, but this is a book written with the female athlete in mind. And mm-hmm. we talk about you know specific issues related to pregnancy. Um, if one of your athletes has a concussion, even though you're a sports med doc or say a spine doc or a hand doc, but your patient had a concussion, you could potentially get educated in that and help treat them a little bit better just by reading, you know, a 20 minute chapter. So, right. um, so there's a lot of great ones in here, but the ACL one and soccer players is my favorite. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. You, know, you think about like being pregnant and being the female athlete. I remember when I was pregnant, my ob you know, I had visited him at one of my checkups and he's like, you know, you probably should be, you know, shouldn't be lifting, you know, a lot of weight. And I'm like, and this is, I'm in my middle of my joints rotation, right? Through my first and a little bit of my second trimester. And I'm like, so how much weight are we talking? And he was just like, you can't lift more than 20 pounds. I'm like, oh, all right. Well, yeah, you're reducing a 400 pound hip and that's part of yeah, your job. Yeah, literally so. like lifting a leg and prepping it and all these sorts of things. I'm like, all right, well, broke that rule. So it's just kind yep. of like, you know, when you have like an, you know, a sports medicine person in mind and like, I'm not like, you know, running and, you know, doing those things like I used to, but I'm still like doing stuff every day. And so it would be nice to have like, a surgeon's point of view and be like, so you were certainly lifting more than 20 pounds before you can certainly try to do that again, you know? Um, yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, and so what I love is that you talk about, you know, you just, you know, publish this textbook like NBD, but how does one, like how, what did you learn from that process in terms of actually publishing a textbook? Well, great question. We actually, so this was my, um, not my first book. So we, we actually published a book when I was in residency called Case Competencies, published by Elsevier. And this book, um, we're working on edition two right now. And this, so I learned a lot from that process. And that book was literally, um, when I was a resident, there were all of these sources, online websites, textbooks, yellow journal articles, stuff your attending wanted you to read. And it was too much even then. And that was a while ago. I can't imagine how the residents feel now with just so much information overload. And what I wanted at that time was to figure out what do I need to do to get the case done well? That Mm. what do I need to do to prep, execute, and finish the case? All the background stuff I can read on my own time, but what do I need to do to get the surgery done well? So we created this book called Case Competencies in Orthopedic Surgery that literally each chapter is just how to prep, drape, do the case and be done with it. There's none of the background on biomechanics, anatomy, et cetera. There's other sources for that. And so I learned a lot in that process. And then in this process that all got flipped because we um, we got contracted to do the book. And then there was this little worldwide pandemic that occurred called COVID. And that, um, that really threw a wrench into everything, um, not just you know, everyone kind of shut down and you think you'd have more time to work on chapters. Well, that's not the case. And I think we all know that you actually had less time during COVID because you, your schedule was so messed up that, that you didn't have time to organize to do, at least I didn't, to do academic stuff. And you're mixing in telehealth and figuring out when you can operate, et cetera. Then there was production issues due to supply chain issues. So literally publishing the book became delayed because we Mm. couldn't get the materials and couldn't get um, all of that done. So I would say in terms of getting started, you know, I was thankful that I had the experience with the first book. Um, and I would say the key is making sure you have good people around you. So my co-editors, as I mentioned before, phenomenal. Um, and I think the number one key, if I could summarize it, is make sure you're passionate about the topic. Because if it's a topic that you're not interested in or you're doing it just to do it, it's just going to feel like a burden and you're never going to want to get it done and you're going to push it off. This was easy. We wanted to do this. We wanted to get this topic out. It was so easy to have calls and emails about this. We just wanted to get it done. 
Um, right. COVID threw a wrench in it, but but overall, um, I would say, you know, it's it's uh, it's a process. This is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, you will find so many things when you're done doing it that you wish you did differently and wish you had a different order of even the layout or how it looks or different chapters. Right. Um, but that's what, you know, addition two is for. Yeah, no, that's so true. And, you know, my last question for you with regard to your textbook is what do you hope readers will take away from your textbook? I think two things. I think one, that there are a ton of experts in the field of sports medicine, and so many of them just happen to be women. And I think that that's awesome. And right. number two, there are nuances to the female athletes. So I can't tell you how many times I've heard a lot of, um, you know, typically male colleagues say, well, it doesn't really matter. An ACL is an ACL. Your technique's going to be the same. And and it, I just, I have to hold my breath and kind of bite my lip a little bit when I hear that. Um, and so, you know, there, there are certain things in medicine that are going to be the same regardless mm -hmm. of the patient's sex, but there are many more things that are not. And so mm -hmm. I hope if anyone's interested in this topic and they choose to read this book, they take away some of those subtle nuances that are critical to treating the female athlete appropriately and getting that athlete the best possible outcome. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Well, congratulations on that textbook and thank you for thank putting you. it out into the world. Um, and then my smooth transition is that you recently put another thing out into the world, which was you did a JBJS article um, entitled What's New in Sports Medicine, in which you provide an updated literature review of various pathologies within sports medicine. And I'd love for our listeners to just get introduced for some of our listeners, our students, which is very nice. Um, to PRP. So for our listeners, PRP is platelet-rich plasma. And as you state, it is a popular yet controversial topic in sports medicine. So I would love if you can provide basically a brief introduction to PRP and why there's controversy surrounding it. Absolutely. And so I, I would like to 100% um, credit my co-authors on this paper. Um, first, Hannah Bradstell. She was my research fellow, and she literally just started her first year of medical school this week. Oh and God. so it's super, super exciting. Um, I got to watch her grow, you know, from an undergrad to a med student over a couple of years, putting out papers like this um, and just doing a ton of work. So kudos to her. And then to Steve Thompson, who sent the invite to, to do this. Um, just knowing my background and interest. And, and honestly, I'm a big dork. So I read a lot of the papers that come out in sports medicine. Um, and so uh, credit to those two individuals for helping with this. So PRP um, is probably a word for anyone listening that knows about it that brings a visceral response. People either love it or hate it, but there's probably no neutrality with it. And the reason is because the literature regarding PRP is so challenging to understand and challenging to interpret. And then the public literature, uh, you know, i.e. Google, has literally millions and millions of hits when it comes to PRP. And so when patients come in and ask about PRP, that's what they're asking about, what they saw mm. uh, when they did their search or what their neighbor had done. And then you as the expert are trying to use science to help guide you and the science is not so great. So that's why it's a controversial topic. Mm. So in brief, PRP stands for platelet-rich plasma. And this is a autologous product. So it's a product out of your own body. And essentially what happens is your blood gets drawn, just like you're getting blood drawn for a regular blood test or something like that. And then it gets put into a centrifuge machine and the machine, and there's a variety of proprietary, proprietary machines out there. The machine spins it down into a concentrate. And it's typically anywhere from two cc's up to 10 cc's, depending on how it's spun and what your goals are. 
And there's many types of PRP, but the two main or broad categories include leukocyte-rich PRP and leukocyte-poor PRP. Now, PRP is defined by the American Red Cross as a sample of blood plasma that's got greater than two times the platelet concentrations as your regular peripheral blood. That could be 2.2 times, 2,000 times, 2 million times, and you can Mm. see where the challenge is with the science because it's really hard to define. And for a given pathology, more platelets is not always better. And the premise behind platelets, we all know about platelets. So when you get a paper cut, the reason you stop bleeding is because of platelets, among other things, but because of platelets. There's these molecules called alpha granules that get released from the, or activated from the platelets. And once they're activated and released, they release growth factors. And ideally we get some clotting or healing of tissue. And so that's the premise of PRP. And so leukocyte-rich PRP is when the centrifuge machine is designed to spin the product such that you have a higher concentration of leukocytes, essentially neutrophils. Mm -hmm. And those neutrophils, we know leukocytes, white blood cells, can be good for many things in the body and then bad for other things in the body, but they can be associated with higher levels of catabolic cytokines, such as IL-1, IL-6, TNF-alpha, et cetera. And those can have pro-inflammatory effects as opposed to anabolic cytokines, which have more growth um, processing effects. And so for certain conditions where we want some inflammation, such as tennis elbow, et cetera, where we want to stimulate a little inflammation in that area to ideally get some healing, leukocyte-rich PRP can be very helpful. Mm -hmm. But in other conditions where we're already inflamed, such as osteoarthritis, that would be a disaster. And so we want leukocyte poor PRP. And in that case, the same peripheral blood is spun down, but in a different way to get rid of some of the leukocytes. Now you can't get rid of all of them. You can't get rid of all of the red cells, but the technology is pretty good where you can get down to a buffy coat layer and just get what you need. And so then you get a more um, leukocyte poor PRP that's got a higher level of platelets relative to the leukocytes, et cetera. And you would put that in an area of the body that you don't want inflammation, such as osteoarthritis or potentially meniscus tears, et cetera. Um, The challenge is that you can find a paper to support PRP for probably any pathology in the body. Mm -hmm. And you can probably find a paper to say there's no difference. You can also find a paper to support leukocyte-rich PRP for this indication and leukocyte-poor PRP for the same indication. So the literature is really, really, really challenging. Um, So that's, that's my, I don't know, that might've took two minutes, but that's my cliff note summary of PRP. That's an excellent summary. Um, and I, and I think it's so interesting because the fact that like, even, so I was talking to my brother-in-law about it and he's in finance. Right. And even he knows about like PRP and like, how's like, and it's, it's interesting how even like lay people know about it and know that there's controversy about it. And for me, it just like blows my mind that there could be all these differences um in the research when you know one you know as a researcher you'd hope that like no there's one answer and then one answer and and you are able to find it right well i think the other you know there's a couple other yes yes to that for sure the the couple other interesting things are most even high quality researchers don't report on their methodology when they discuss prp in clinical studies Hmm. so jorge chala published a paper almost a decade ago now looking at over 100 PRP papers all throughout the body in musculoskeletal medicine. 
and found that only 12% of those papers reported on how the PRP was processed. So even if you find a paper that you like and you say, yes, this pathology is successfully treated with PRP, you can't necessarily go replicate that in your own practice because you don't know how they did the PRP. You don't know how they processed it, what company they used, what, how much blood they drew, how many times they injected. Was it one injection? Was it three injections? What did they do? Only 12% of authors are, are reporting that. Now, I think because we talk about this so much, it's up to like 30 or 40% of authors are starting to report and publish their methodology appropriately. But even that's a little weak, right? We need 100%. We need replicatable methods so we can extrapolate findings and then apply them to our practice. The other, you know, is an unspoken issue, but it's not so unspoken, is this is a cash pay procedure. So for the most part, this is not covered by insurance. And depending on your practice model, and there's a lot of, I mean, we could talk for literally hours about this, but depending on if you're in a private practice and how you have patients pay for procedures versus a hospital employed practice versus an academic practice versus, say, a private equity based practice or, you know, all the different models that we have. There's different ways for you or your hospital group or your practice to purchase PRP kits and then sell those PRP kits essentially to your patient for a cash pay price. Also with your technical fee, if your facility wants to charge for a facility fee, if your anesthesiologist wants to charge for a fee for drawing the blood, if they're the ones drawing the blood, there's a lot of nuances that go into this um, or your nurse, if you're doing it in the clinic. And so there's that whole part of it too. And when it comes to looking at outcomes, if patients are paying for a procedure, there's an inherent bias that they're going to want this procedure to go well. Mm -hmm. So the ideal studies are going to be randomized trials where patients have no, no knowledge of if they're getting PRP. So everyone gets a blood draw um, and everyone gets an injection and some's a sham and some's not, um, and they're not paying for it. Those are the ideal studies where we can take out that inherent bias. But right. that's, you know, that's the unspoken factor. And patients come in every day in my office asking for PRP. And I say, well, first, it costs this. Second, it's unproven and not considered, um, you know, it's considered experimental by the FDA. And that's why insurance companies don't cover it. This is my indication. These are my, you know, this is my, what I don't use it for. And I would say 90% of the time I'm saying no and patients leave disappointed. Um, but that, that's the reality of PRP. Right. You'd think that we've been talking about this for long enough such that there are these, you know, double blind, randomized control trial, you know, and all of these, you know, meta-analyses that have been done that have like put a definitive answer on this. But do you think it's just like that hidden cash incentive is what's not like preventing us from getting there? But you'd think we've been, I feel like, I, I mean, gosh, I've been talking about this even since I was in med school. Like you'd think we'd have this figured out by now. Yeah, I think it's a loaded question. I think that there's a lot of potential barriers to having this become a, it has a CPT, but to have it become a reimbursable procedure um, and probably too many to list here. But I think, uh, I think the business of orthopedics has a role here. I think the industry influences even with some of those double, and I work with industry. I love working with industry. I love, mm -hmm. and I have full disclosures and you can find all of my disclosures online. And, and I'm happy to talk about that any, any day of the week, because I think it's important to be transparent. Um, but but um, I think industry, despite some of the higher level two and even level one studies, there often is industry flair in those studies. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have to interpret with caution for sure. Um, but industry helps push 
the envelope with innovation and development. I mean, look no further than the COVID vaccines. We couldn't have done those. I say we like I had any role in that. People much <laughs> smarter than me couldn't have done those without industry support, right? There's right. no way that can happen. Um, and I, I would, I don't want to get too political, but I would assume most of us are thankful that those studies occurred so that we can have a better world. And that's all the politics I'll get into on this podcast. And so, um, so I think, um, I, I think there's a lot of potential barriers to having right. the CPT code for PRP eventually become covered. But I hope that it does for certain indications where there are very good studies. I mean, there are mm-hmm. some clear indications in my mind for PRP, and I'm sure people would argue that, but we argue everything in orthopedics, right? Like anterior hip, posterior hip, ACL graft choice, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of things we argue and, and everything is technically evidence-based because you can find a paper to support anything. But I do think there are a couple clear indications for PRP. For example, mild to moderate knee osteoarthritis. There's been really good data to show that leukocyte-poor PRP is helpful for this condition, not in a cartilage disease-modifying effect, but in a symptom-modifying effect. And mm-hmm. for that patient who's not quite ready for joint replacement, but not an, indica- not an indicated candidate for arthroscopy, we don't really have a good in-between. For the mild to moderate arthritis, PRP can be very helpful, potentially more helpful than steroid or more helpful than hyaluronic acid. Um, but I think there are also some clear ind- surgical indications, you know, augmenting meniscus repair. We've seen some really good literature on a variety of biologic techniques, PRP being one of them. Um, so there, there is, um, in my mind, some clear indication for PRP in some cases, but there's still so much more we don't know. Right. No, that's awesome. Well, thank you for providing just this great, like, summary, cliff notes, as you say, um, about PRP. Because I think it, it's so interesting. And I know we can talk about that. Even even though I'm going into onk, this stuff is, like, still very interesting <laughs> and just, like, yeah, it just gets ugh, so good. Um, but I would love to move on into something that is also very interesting, um, is in-office needle arthroscopy. Um, it's something that's becoming more popular, I feel like. Um, can you please describe what this procedure, you know, quote unquote, entails and how you're able to do this in the office? Absolutely. So this is an area of big time interest for me and many, um, and it's all about trying to treat our patients with more point of care diagnoses and minimally invasive techniques and potentially reduce the risks of anesthesia, minimize or eliminate the risks of anesthesia, and in many cases, reduce cost. So it's kind of a win-win-win once we figure out who and what and why we should be doing this for, and that's where the research comes into play. So in brief, in-office arthroscopy is essentially an arthroscopy, so you know, just like you do arthroscopy in the operating room, but done in a procedure room or in your office setting where you see patients as if you were seeing them just to evaluate in your case, you know, their, their tumor or their knee arthritis or their spine condition, et cetera. And you can take a needle arthroscopy device, and there's a few different companies that offer these, and it's disposable, at least currently. And you can essentially inject that or put that into the joint that you're interested in scoping and look around, just like you would do for an arthroscopy in the operating room. The size of needle scopes today are no bigger than an 18-gauge spinal needle. And so if you think about aspirating someone in the office with an 18-gauge needle, this is basically the same thing. There's no scalpels, there's no stitches, there's no narcotics, and there's no anesthesia other than local anesthetic. And so from an office-based approach, it's phenomenal. Now, this is not for everyone, and certainly there are indications, and we can discuss those. 
but in brief, that is what in-office arthroscopy is. And it's just using a smaller version of what's already a minimally invasive tool, right? And an arthroscope is minimally invasive. It's four millimeters or if for smaller joints, 2.7 millimeters. Um, but it's, it's a small tool. This is half the size of that, if not smaller, and um, potentially causes less trauma to the soft tissues, less pain, et cetera. Hmm. What have been your indications for using an office arthroscopy? Well, typically I use this for diagnostics alone, but we have been moving more into procedural based treatments minimally. Um, and there are other surgeons around the country who have a lot more experience doing this for actual procedures you know, dozens of times a week, et cetera, in the office. So it's really taken off in certain practices around the country. And I'm excited to learn from those individuals as well as my own experience. So for me, the biggest indication is for patients who need a staging arthroscopy for future cartilage or meniscus transplantation. So in brief, I do a lot of joint preservation surgery. It's, it's something I, that's kind of where my practice has grown into a niche for. And when you indicate someone for a cartilage transplant or a meniscus transplant, you need to be sure. And MRIs are not perfect. They often undersize the size of the defect. They don't show, especially in patients who have had prior surgery, the changes to the articular surface on the tibia, for example, and uh, quite well, or the status of the meniscus. And so when we do these transplants, we're often ordering cadaveric grafts. And not only are these expensive, they're in high demand. So you have to be sure you're going to use it. Otherwise, you waste that donor's gift where it could have gone to someone else. And I'm very for my own biases and my own knee, I'm very, very passionate about making sure we use the gift of donation um, uh, perfectly. And so many patients, in fact, over 95% patients, if 95% of patients in my practice get a staging scope before I'm willing to do a cartilage transplant. Mm -hmm. And so that involves two surgeries, right? They go to the operating room, they get their scope, they wake up, they go home. And then they're, if they're a candidate, we order the graft and we take them back four to eight weeks later for their transplant. With an in-office arthroscopy, I can pop the needle in right then and get an answer and then order the graft. So it just gives a point of care diagnosis on day one, as opposed to having to sign up for surgery, get potentially medical clearance, to go through anesthesia, um, go to the operating room, spend an hour getting ready, an hour in the operating room, if that, um, and then an hour in PACU narcotics, medications, anesthetics, like all that's gone and reduced. Um, so that's one major indication. Another major indication is the post-surgical patient who's having pain where we can't necessarily rely on MRI. And the best uh, example of this is meniscus repair. So if a patient's had a meniscus repair, but they're still having pain, we all know that MRIs on post-meniscus repair patients can be challenging to interpret because the sutures can look like tears and vice versa. And so if I can get the needle scope in and tell the patient, oh, this meniscus is um, is intact, which I hope to be able to say, and it's just scar tissue, very relieving for surgeon, very relieving for patient. Otherwise, the MRI is kind of wishy-washy, and then you might have to go to surgery anyway. Or, you know, you can say, yeah, unfortunately, this does not look like it healed. Um, obviously, this is, you know, you never want to have to have that conversation, but you can tell them, I think we do need to uh, go to surgery and trim this out. Or depending on your setup, um, if you're comfortable doing that right then and there, you could, in theory, perform a partial meniscectomy right in the office. Um, my, I'm a little bit um, more neurotic, I would say, and my residents and fellows and PA would certainly agree with that. Um, but I, I, I think the procedure um, 
based approach in my office setup is a little bit more challenging just from a sterility perspective, et cetera. Uh, but in a focused or dedicated procedure room in your office where a lot of people do, for example, carpal tunnels or epidurals, I think this would be ideal. In a regular clinic room where we're examining patients, it's not really the right setup, I think, to do procedures. At least in my practice, the rooms aren't big enough. So mm-hmm. I really stick to the diagnostics in, in, that, in my current office setting. We have done several uh, wide awake needle scope procedures in the operating room where I've wanted to have the opportunity to get the patient off to sleep if they couldn't tolerate the procedure. But we've done wide awake synovectomies just under local alone in the operating room under um, just no sedation, uh, wide awake patients watching. And I'm literally shaving out fat pad and synovium, which you think would be very painful just because of how the body works. Um, But they're tolerating it just fine and they love it. They get to watch it. It's a little painful for me because I like to listen to music in the operating room and and kind of (laughs) relax. Um, but uh, the patients love it. So for the right patient, even um, in the operating room, using a needle scope can be nice because it reduces or eliminates the need for anesthesia. Um, anesthesia. Wow. It's, I'm surprised that they tolerate this. I don't, I don't know. I feel like it, I, right? It's got to be the right patient. So you have to yeah. tell them, um, you know, this, you're going to feel pressure. You're going to feel a little uncomfortable. I have to manipulate your knee in different positions to get access so I don't hurt the cartilage. Mm-hmm. So it's not for everyone, uh, but for the right patient, it's game changing. Um, I've done, you know, we, we're actually about to publish um, this, but a technique for ACL reconstruction with just using a needle scope. And this, the patient was asleep just because the drilling of the bone obviously is going to hurt. But um, I will tell you, when we do traditional ACL reconstructions, and I do quite a few of these, we use a lot of fluid. And so the circulating nurse is always putting more arthroscopy fluid bags up on the IV pole. They're running around the room. The floor gets wet, and it becomes potentially a slipping hazard, et cetera. Um, When I do a needle scope ACL, we go through one bag of fluid. So there's the circulating nurse loves it. The room turnover is incredibly quick. Um, there's less wires going around, less issues with fluid and suction. And uh, anecdotally, and we're looking to publish our results once we get enough patients, the patients have less pain. Uh, but mm. I don't know if it's due to less fluid going into the soft tissues and insufflating the joint. Uh, but I think, you know, there's there's a lot of ways in which needle arthroscopy is not just going to change what we can do diagnostically in the office, but therapeutically in the operating room. Right. And it's always, I feel like that situation where like, if you were to see something, you could always just like transition to like a regular scope. Like, yep, if you, exactly. you know, like as you're doing your, di- you know, see, I, I know some things where you do some <laughs> diagnostics, Scott, like I'm proud of, I'm flexing my sports medicine muscles here. Where like you, you, you know, you see, you know, whatever, like a meniscal injury that wasn't detected or what have you, then you can just like throw in a regular scope. Right. And yep. whereas, yeah. Yeah. And, and to stay, you know, to stay humble, I've had a few where patients have had five, six surgeries before coming to see me and they really want the needle scope to see if there's anything I can even do. Those ones I tend to take to the operating room because there's so much scar tissue, synovitis and thickening that I'm not confident I can use the needle scope successfully. Um, and so there's been a couple of times where we start with the scope, the needle scope, and I say, I just am not getting what I need out of this. And we switch to the regular scope. But right. that to me is like everything in surgery, that's indications. So mm-hmm. you got to know before you go, you got to pick your patients appropriately. Those are not patients you necessarily want to tackle in the um, office. And I would say for anyone trying this, you want to try this in the, for sure in the lab, but um, in the operating room first, so you can get your hands used to it because it is a different feel and there is a learning curve not mm-hmm. a big one but like anything new there is a little bit of a learning curve right 
And now I know that there are folks out in this world who are going to poo-poo this and they're going to say, this is ridiculous. How could you do such a thing? Um, so what would you say to those folks who, um, what would you say to the naysayers out there? I think everyone has is entitled to their opinion. And there's many people where they're so successful in their practice that why change? And I, I get mm -hmm. that, right? And that's often some of the people who are more established in practice, been in practice for 10 to 20 to 30 years. If it works for them, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it, right? If it's working right. for them. But I would also say medicine is evolving at a much more rapid rate now than it ever has. And I have a few examples of this. So one is arthroscopic rotator cuff repair. So in the past, when we did rotator, when I say we, again, like I was operating then, um, but when, when rotator cuff repair was invented, it was an open procedure. And then when the arthroscope was invented, it transitioned from being an open procedure over, you know, a decent period of time. It wasn't overnight to being a now largely arthroscopic procedure. And I think most shoulder surgeons, not all, but most so shoulder surgeons would say, this is one of the best inventions ever because I can see the whole shoulder. I can use little poke holes and fix the cuff. Uh, but there was a period of transition where the naysayers for arthroscopic cuff repair were not happy about this. But I would argue, and I've talked to many of my mentors who went through that transition, that they're so thankful that we have this technology. Mm -hmm. Another example is in my own practice where I trained um, for residency and fellowship at Rush, my ACL experience, and we did a ton of ACLs, they're very busy. My ACL experience was primarily BTB autographed or BTB allograft for patients indicated for allograft, typically the older patients, and very rarely hamstrings. I didn't mm -hmm. see a single quadriceps. And now quadriceps is probably 30% of my practice or more completely self-taught and not because I want to be trendy and, and do what other people are doing, but I stay up with the literature. I look at new techniques and for certain patients, I think quadriceps might be a more ideal graft choice than what my, my usual is the BTB auto. And as I follow my results and follow the literature, I'm very happy. So, so you have to be willing to at least adapt your practice a little bit. And I would say to the naysayers, try it. Um, it's, it is a, it's a learning curve. The current technology that's widely available, it's a zero degree scope. And we're all used to using a 30 degree scope. Uh, but there, there's even evolutions with that. The, the one, uh, you know, the company that I use offers a high flow system that has a 15 degree kind of curvature in, in the sheath. And so then you get a little bit of that kind of curved um, view mm -hmm. that you're used to. Um, and once you do more like anything else, and I think most learning curves in orthopedic surgery procedures range from 10 to 30, once you hit about five to 10 of these uh, needle scopes, you, you honestly don't recognize the difference. For me, the only difference I see is again, with the system I use, the picture comes up in a square and with mm. traditional arthroscopy, it's a circle. But when I play side-by-side -side videos of the same procedure, if you don't notice that you feel like you're watching the same thing. Um, and so it's, it's, I always have to remind myself, oh, this was done with the needle scope because it's a square and the, the quality of, of visualization these days is so good that it, you forget that you're even using a different technology. Mm -hmm. So I would say to the naysayers, I understand. Um, and if it works for you, if what you're used to doing, it works for you and you're happy with that, I'm not going to, I'm not here to tell anyone and they have to change. But I think, um, from my experience, I've seen with my mentors, their evolution from open to arthroscopic approaches and changing their techniques. And I've seen even in my early practice with me being willing to go outside my comfort zone, my practice has evolutionized to the point where I can offer more things to more patients. And I can really um, get into the weeds about 
customizing my treatment for my patient instead of just doing, you know, quote, what I always do. So I think it's, I think it's important to be willing to change, but I understand why people might be hesitant to do so. Hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really, it's, you know, it's so cool. All right. It's It's cool. Once you're going to start doing tumor surgery with the needle scope, just wait. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's 50 years down the road when we can make our, our eye and the tumor pops out. Oh my God. That's awesome. Well, I know that you have many things to do. And so I do kind of want to get into kind of my last set of questions for you. Um, And I know that you're doing many things in orthopedics, but I would love to kind of hear about what your future goals and projects are you like clinically research as well as all the other stuff that you're doing. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I'm, um, I do a lot of work in the research area and with teaching and education. Um, and I work a lot with industry and I'm trying to work on some new products and new techniques. So I would say there's a lot of things that I'm interested in, and this is a blessing and a curse because it, it can be hard sometimes to, to really narrow down on one passion project. Um, one thing that I've recently started doing in the last year is I was, um, I'm not sure why, I'm not sure how this happened because I certainly don't qualify, but I was named editor in chief of the Journal of Cartilage and Joint Preservation Surgery. So JC, Congratulations. Thank you. Um, this is the official journal of the ICRS. So our main cartilage society, um, the, they previously had an official journal that I'm sure we're all familiar with cartilage, great journal, but they have shifted their focus and JCJP is now the official journal of ICRS. And, um, it's a different experience being an editor in chief. I've been an associate editor for other journals and certainly on the editorial board for a variety of journals. Um, but it's a different experience being an editor in chief. And um, that has become one of my main focus and passion projects for the last year and will continue into the, the near and probably long-term future. Um, publishing is changing. The, the way in which in- information is disseminated is changing. Traditional peer-reviewed papers take weeks to months to years to publish. By the time you publish, the data is already outdated. With um, publishing now and, and including with JCJP, we're an open access journal. And so while we're a startup, so to speak, we're a supported startup with big lofty goals. And I think we're going to accomplish our goals just looking at trajectories right now. Um, but uh, getting information out in real time is one of our main issues. So, or our main goal, I shouldn't say main issues, our main goals. And so um, we try to have a short return on investment. So you send a paper to us. We try to get it reviewed by experts um, that I've recruited. And, and my associate editor board is phenomenal. I want to highlight Lucienne Vonk, another um, phenomenal woman in, in science and orthopedics. Um, and, uh, and she has been terrific helping getting this journal going with me um, and our whole team. And so um, we want to get these articles out in real time so that people can use the, the information that we have and that others are publishing and impact their practice. And we're using different avenues, um, including social media, to get article information out. Social media, like PRP, is another term that I think brings a visceral response to most of us. But the reality is it's 2022, and this is where we're at, and this is part of our lives. So JCJP is is a big project for me right now um, from a research and leadership perspective, and it's going to be exciting, I think, to see where that goes. I think um, another uh, project for me has been, and I'll, I'm not going to get into the nitty gritties of some of the science, but we we are looking a lot at post-traumatic osteoarthritis and trying mm-hmm. to prevent it in the setting of ACL injury. There's a lot of groups around the country looking at this around the world. Um, this is a passion project for me. There's over 300 to 400,000 ACLs injuries in the U.S. alone each year. 
We mm -hmm. all know the patient who tore their ACL as a teenager or in their 20s, and now they're in their 30s and 40s with bone-on-bone -bone arthritis, and we have no options. So if we can prevent that inflammatory cascade before it starts, that um, that would be phenomenal. So those are a couple of the things, um, but I could certainly talk for for hours about uh, other things that I'm interested in, but I would say, you know, that from a basic science standpoint, that type of research, and then from from just an overall research perspective, the JCJP um, uh, journal has been uh, a, a big part of my life over the last year and will continue to be. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And, you know, good luck with everything that you're doing. I know that a lot of this stuff is just, it's cool when you talk to folks and they're just like, you can see the passion, right? And it's just like, I'm really, it, it's just, thank you. It's, sure, it's sure. awesome. And so I know I, 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 we're going over time. I'm so sorry. Um, it's okay. <laughs> but I would love to go into the final segment, which is the final five, which are the same five questions I ask every guest on the She Can Fix It podcast. And so my first final five question for you, Dr. Frank, is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? Well, there, there are just so many, uh, but I would say my absolute favorite is doing a cartilage transplant with a fresh osteochondral allograft. Mm. This is perhaps the most satisfying surgery that I do. And when your indications are appropriate, the results are so predictable. And so mm. um, when you get that right patient and you do this surgery and you execute it well, you knock on wood, you, you know that this is going to be a, a home run. You really do change lives. I am, um, I feel like, you know, one of those commercials hair club for men or something, but I'm, I have this in my knee and it's been, um, among other things in my knee and this has changed my life and it's just so satisfying. And then if you add, which most of the time we're doing an osteotomy or a meniscus transplant and, or a ligament reconstruction, we call it the trifecta or the quad when we do all four things, it's it's so technically challenging, but so unbelievably satisfying when it goes mm. well. Um, and so I, I just, it's, it's, if you've ever put together a 3d jigsaw puzzle and you put in that last piece, that's what an osteochondral allograft is. It's putting in that last piece and you know, you're using a gift of donation from a family and a patient that unfortunately passed and chose to donate. Uh, thank goodness for them. And so grateful and you're taking that gift and you're giving it to someone to live a better life, there is literally nothing better. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. What are your go-to topics for Grand Rounds presentations? Well, this is, you know, it's interesting. I, I, um, I've been very fortunate to kind of give quite a few Grand Rounds around the country. Um, and I usually tend to talk about joint preservation, which mm -hmm. is, you know, it focuses on cartilage transplants, meniscus transplants, osteotomies, and then combining all of those. And I often add biologics to that because I've become a um, biologics person for better or for worse. Again, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, but I do quite a bit of research in biologics. I've been asked to give a lot of talks on biologics and I try to talk as if I would want to hear. And I'm, I'm one of those people, I need to keep it simple. So I give a talk that's very simple on biologics to try to break it down so that we can understand it. So mm -hmm. I, I enjoy talking about that as well. So I'd say joint preservation and biologics. But more recently, I've been doing um, quite a few talks on advice for first five years in training for residents and fellows. And this has become a passion uh, area of interest for me, I would say. And that's because even though I felt like I had phenomenal training at Rush as a resident and fellow, I did not understand what it meant to start practice. And there are so many things I wish I knew. And a lot of things you just have to learn. You just have right. to learn on the fly. It's just part of the process. 
but there are a few things I wish I knew and maybe would have helped start things out. Um, and this starts from how to search for a job and then signing a contract and working with contract lawyer and then what to specifically do literally on day one versus six months in board collection and then the next couple years. And, um, and so I give a, a, you know, I have a 10 minute version of this talk and then I have an hour version of this talk where I kind of go through all of these and I always get emails from the residents. Um, hey, can you share that with me? Or what did you mean about this? Or can you really talk about this after? And I love that because I feel like I'm mm -hmm. connecting with people who maybe won't have, though everyone's going to struggle. Um, and part of the struggle is good, but maybe won't struggle on some of the things that are unnecessary to struggle on as they start their practice. Um, so I enjoy talking about that as well. Nice. And then this is usually the hard question. Uh, what is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? This one for me is easy, actually. Um, so, so my my background, and we talked a lot about it, but my um, my big interest, I think, in ortho. I guess I should have mentioned this earlier, but I'll mention it now. I, when I was a goalkeeper in soccer, I had a knee injury, and that knee injury stemmed into seven surgeries. And of, um, five of those seven involved joint preservation and my cert, including meniscus and cartilage allografts and mm -hmm. um, my knee, knock, knock on wood, doing great. But my surgeon is this, um, this guy, most of our listeners I'm assuming have heard of named Brian Cole. He's a sports medicine and shoulder and cartilage restoration guru out of Russian Chicago. And, um, Dr. Cole changed my life. He, mm -hmm. he changed my life. And my favorite memory as an orthopedic surgeon is the day I did my first meniscus transplant on a patient. And I thought, I'm going to change their life. Mm -hmm. That that was the thought. And, uh, you know, fort knock on wood, that fortunately went well and the patient's doing great because they don't always go great. Um, but that that's where it came full circle. I went from patient suffering to patient struggling through recovery to patient happy with recovery and happy with outcome. And I went through a lot of ups and downs, seven surgeries is, you know, it's just knee stuff. It's not cancer. It's not heart disease, but it was my life. I was an athlete. So it impacted me greatly. Um, and, and then I got to do research with Dr. Cole and his whole team and Nick Verma and Tony Romeo and, and all the guys there. Um, and, uh, and learned what it means to be an academic superstar, got to research allografts, help advance the field of allografts. We published a ton of papers that year and into the future. Then I got to scrub with him as a resident, scrub with him as a fellow on transplants and really honed my craft of becoming an expert in this. And then I got to go do it on my own. And every time I do a transplant, I think of Dr. Cole and I think, how lucky am I that I get to do to someone else what someone did to me and change my life. So that is my favorite memory. The very first meniscus transplant I did my first year in practice, and I will never forget that. And I hope that patient has as good a result as I've had with mine. Um, and it's, um, it is literally this, the circle of the orthopedic circle of life right there. Oh, that's amazing. Oh. I'm, I'm, like, sorry, I'm like choking up. I'm like, no, don't choke up. It's, just, it's, it's so cool what we get to do, right? We get, we right. get to do these things and change lives and it doesn't always go well. And that's devastating when it doesn't go well, but when it does, it's, it's just, it's, there's no feeling like it. Yeah. That's special. Moving on to something that won't make me choke up. Um, <laughs> what are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? Well, I think while my uh, my PA and my team at work would say that I'm a workaholic, um, I do have a life outside of work and in orthopedics. Um, although I do love working, um, my I love being on my bike. So I have a, a road bike, a tri bike, and then I I during the COVID pandemic I. 
Um, I got into Peloton and I love Mm -hmm. my Peloton. So I love, you know, I love working out. Um, I don't do the same stuff I used to do as a college athlete just because my my knee and my expectations have changed. Uh, But I still love being outside or inside working out. I just fitness is a big part of my life. I love hiking. And that's one of the reasons I'm in Colorado. You can go outside and go wherever you want and have a good experience. Um, but I would say the thing that is my favorite activity outside of the OR is my French bulldog, Murphy. Uh, Murphy is, um, you know, he's in every one of my talks. A lot of my patients know about Murphy. He comes up every day. It's like people talk about their kids. I don't have kids yet, but I talk about Murphy. Um, and so, you know, he's, uh, he's a big, he comes with me. He, he's my, he's my guy. So, um, I spend a lot of time with him. And then of course, you know, hanging out with family and friends, it sounds cliche, but that's, um, that's what life's all about. And I'm very fortunate to have uh, my family and friends in Chicago, who I just saw when I was in Chicago at a course last week. Um, and then my family and friends out here in Denver, I have a bunch of cousins out here. So I enjoy spending time with them as well. Dr. Frank, my final question for you is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? Well, first, I could use a lot of advice. So if anyone has advice, please send it my way because I can certainly do this better. Um, but I would say for from my experience, and I've had a lot of them, good, bad, and ugly, I would say, number one, don't send the angry email. So there will always be emails and things and calls and texts you want to send for things that are not going your way. I would just caution everyone to hold on those. Put them in a draft inbox and, and don't send them till the next day. Um, chances are you won't want to send it and um, you won't have needed to send it, but you just needed to get it out. Um, so I would say don't send the anger email is advice number one. Advice number two, stay humble um, and don't get too high on the highs and don't get too low on the lows. You're going to have a string of great outcomes where you feel like you're the best surgeon and then you're going to have a complication and things tend to come in threes. So you'll have three in a row and you'll feel like the world's worst surgeon and and it's it's really humbling. This is a humbling field. So I would say stay humble and Don't get too high on the highs and don't get too low on the lows. And lastly, I would say, especially for the orthopods in training, stay with it. This is the best field in the world. There is literally nothing better. Um, You've probably discovered that. That's why you've gone through the work of getting into orthopedics. Um, But for days when you're struggling or you're having a bad rotation or say you're dedicated to spine and you have to suffer through me doing arthroscopies, just stay with it uh, because it's the best job in the world. Yeah. Awesome. Dr. Frank, thank you so much. I've had such a blast and oh my God, it was so good. And I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. And honestly, you're doing so much and I really hope you just good luck with everything. You're doing so much. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, gosh, life goals. So thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be on this podcast. You're doing a phenomenal job yourself and I can't wait to see where you go with your career and next steps for you. And um, if you can keep putting on this podcast, that'd be great because I'm going to keep listening. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Rachel Frank. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website, at www.shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe.